At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Welcome to the When to Jump podcast. My name is Mike Lewis. This week's guest, Mignon Fogarty, the host of Grammar Girl, a podcast that is part of the Quick and Dirty Tips network that has reached over 300 million downloads all in all. Mignon is a absolute uh, legend in, in my book, in the podcasting world. She has been behind Grammar Girl for over a decade and has made several jumps of her own. So I'm going to take you right now to my conversation with Mignon about her jump into podcasting through academia, through science, and through a lot of other things as she's found uh, her sweet spot in the world of Grammar Girl. So check it out, and we'll take you there now. Mignon Fogarty, thank you so much for joining us on the When to Jump podcast. Oh, you're welcome, Mike. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So where do we find you today? Where are you coming to us from? Well, today I'm in Reno, Nevada, and we're having amazing windstorms. Uh, I was by a pool yesterday. It looked like the pool was boiling. It was so windy. It was. It's just out of control here. Wow. Wow. And you are based there, correct? I am. I live in Reno, Nevada now. Um, I, I love to ski and we're really close to Tahoe. So it's sort of a, it's a great place to live if you're a skier. Gosh. And, and you, I would say Nevada and Reno hasn't always been home. Is that correct? Right. I grew up in Seattle and I spent many years in Northern California in Santa Cruz and the Bay Area. And then a few years in Arizona, which is where I lived when I um, started the Grammar Girl podcast. Wow. And what was it like starting a podcast? A lot of our listeners, we've, we've, we've heard from folks that are interested in that, think it's cool. They have a, a lot of folks listen to podcasts. What was it like starting a podcast? Was that a surreal experience? Well, it was 12 and a half years ago, so it was really early in the podcasting days. And um, I found some online forums, one in particular called the Podcast Pickle, that was um, <laughs> very, it was very, everyone was really helpful in, you know, helping each other work out the technical details, because back then it wasn't as easy, you know, you had to sort of figure it out on your own, and it was more of a tech heavy thing. And there was a fabulous community, and I still keep in touch with a lot of those people from those early days. And I've always loved technology, too. So I was drawn to podcasting, you know, I was working as a writer, I was working as a science writer, um, but I've just always loved playing with new technology. And I was living in Silicon Valley, and I heard about, you know, this new thing called podcasting, and I really just wanted to give it a try. So um, it was just a fun tinkering experience. It wasn't daunting at all. It was just fun. Wow. And you had always been, it sounds like entrepreneurial, you said interest in technology, but it seems like there was things that, that made you a, maybe a jumper well before that. 
Yes. Uh, I was thinking about in, in college, my roommate and I started a bow business out of our, our room. Uh, we made hair bows for girls, and we went around selling them on campus. And it was so funny because my roommate went on to become a venture capitalist. And you know, 20 years later, she was still putting that on her resume or her profile. And apparently one of the partners said to her, I really don't think you need to put that hair bow business in there anymore. <laughs> but I think we're both really proud of having done that as college students and you know being entrepreneurial for so long yeah absolutely i i i wonder you know you've you've had so much success you said you know if we fast forward to 12 and a half years of running the grammar girl podcast and all that kind of goes with it what has what was that like i i guess to start in the very beginning when you were getting off the ground and those those early days i think of any type of risk you take of any jump are the hardest because you don't really know necessarily early you know early on in day one day two maybe even day 100 how it's going where it's going what did you tell yourself as you started out what was your mentality as you took the reins of something totally new Right. Well, I, you know, I started the podcast essentially as a hobby and I had a different podcast first. I did a science podcast for about eight months and then I switched to doing Grammar Girl and Grammar Girl just took off in a way that, you know, my science podcast hadn't. Within six weeks, it was number two at iTunes in all of podcasting. And so, you know, having worked at startups and things like that, I knew that I was on to something. And so um, I quite quickly started a podcast network. Then I, I signed up my friends and, and I started the Quick and Dirty Tips podcast network. And I had, I think, I had six shows that, so I was producing Grammar Girl and I was managing these other six shows. And I was still working as a freelance writer and editor, which was my primary job. And I had been very successful at that. So that was like a real thing. <laughs> it was a, you know, a lot of work too. And so I was really scrambling those first six to eight months after Grammar Girl took off and I was on my own with the network to just keep up with everything because there were no business models back then. There were We sporadically get an ad here or there, but it was nothing you could live on. So I was still doing, you know, all my other work too, you know, and as entrepreneurs do, you, you work really hard in the beginning and you're not sure if it's going to work. And I knew that I needed a partner to, to just get stable, to grow, you know, to have some investment in the network, just to, you know, make it a real business. And so I started looking for partners. And that's when um, I was put in touch with um, John Sterling at Macmillan. And, you know, initially, they were interested in a book deal, you know, because they were aware of Grammar Girl. And everyone knew that Eat, Shoots and Leaves had done really well. So a grammar book was enticing. But um, as we talked, you know, I made it clear that I was interested in a bigger deal in, you know, a partnership for the to build the podcasting network. And I thought, you know, Macmillan would make a great partner because we had access to all those authors who are experts in their field. And that's exactly what Quick and Dirty Tips is, is shows by experts in their field. So, you know, it seemed like a really great fit. And fortunately for me, Macmillan was looking to build build out more of their digital business. You know, they could see that everything was going digital and they wanted to get in that space. So it was just really good timing. And John and I really hit it off. And so we formed a partnership. And, and then since then, um, you know, we've had access to more resources and we're able to, you know, build out the website, launch more shows, you know, about two or three years in, they took over day-to-day management of the network. And um, I started to focus more exclusively on Grammar Girl because, you know, Grammar Girl just kept growing. We kept thinking, well, it has to stop, but it didn't. So, you know, I wrote seven books in six years and, 
you know, I was doing interviews and traveling and doing webinars and it just became too much to try to do that and run the whole network. So um, I think it was in 2009 that they took over um, day-to-day operations. Wow. You explain for a second that feeling of uh, having the conversation that you mentioned and describe perhaps that idea of going beyond just saying yes to the initial goal, but but instead saying, well, how about something bigger? Because that seems like a huge, a huge not, not risk necessarily, but that's a step forward in the thinking that a lot of people might not, you know, get to advance to or, or want to try to propose given it was such a, a high, not high stakes conversation, but it was an important conversation, it sounds like, and you really went big on pitching, you know, something much broader in, in your vision. What, what caused you to do that? How did you come up with that, that move? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely knew what I wanted and needed because, you know, I had a lot of friends who had started companies. I had been, I had worked at, you know, three or four startups. I was one of the first employees at a couple different startups. So, you know, I, I don't come from an entrepreneurial family, but once I got to college, I was really, in a lot of ways, just surrounded by entrepreneurs. And so I, I just, I felt like it, this was such an obvious opportunity. And even though it was risky, a close friend of the family said, what are you doing with this crazy podcasting thing? Like, you're a really successful science writer and editor. You've worked years to get here. You have a a master's from Stanford. Like, what are you doing throwing that all away to go do this podcast thing that nobody's ever heard of? And I thought, well, that's safe and short-sighted. And, you know, and, and I ask, I always ask myself, what's the worst thing that could happen? You know, I mean, I, I had very specialized skills. I mean, eight years later, my writing clients still occasionally contacted me to see if I could just take on just one project for them. You know, I knew that if I took some time off to try this podcasting thing, it wasn't like I couldn't go back. It wasn't like I was going to starve. You know, I had marketable skills that I could always fall back on. So to me, it didn't seem that risky. It just seemed like this is it. This is my chance. It fell into my lap. And if I don't take it, I'm crazy. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's such an important point to consider what is the worst that can happen. And you had really it sounds like built up a foundation of which if you if you slipped back you weren't going super far there wasn't a big drop uh, the jump maybe wasn't as major because of the work you put in to get to that point right right and you know as i was thinking to prepare for talking with you i that you know actually i am a jumper <laughs> oh so, yeah yeah i mean not only did i do this but i also i dropped out of a phd program at stanford and you know a lot of people again were like have you lost your mind <laughs> and right. you know i just i knew it was the right thing at the time um actually my college roommate who i did the bow business with was starting a company and she wanted me to come join her and be the first employee and you know it was during the dot-com boom and i just knew that i'd regret it if I didn't do it. And I had I always have a backup plan, always. So I didn't drop out of grad school. I took a leave of absence so I could go back if things didn't work out. You know, and I, I ended up not going back. But I do believe in having a backup plan. You know, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't jump into the abyss, but I, I jump when there's opportunities and I have a parachute. Absolutely. I call it you know, sewing the safety net, which many of our listeners know well from the book. That's uh, its own kind of section and and organizational uh, design project of saying how can i like you said maybe start the program take a leave know that you can come back and all of a sudden you know that worst case scenario doesn't look so bad right right
does any of I guess I would say does any of this surprise you but it sounds like a lot of this may have surprised you looking back I think it's fun to have people kind of reflect on the jumps they've made uh, what maybe surprises you most as you think about where you are now and, and especially and maybe we could talk on this for a minute a few years ago you joined the Reynolds School of Journalism at the University of Nevada you're now you are I believe to this day still the the uh, Donald W. Reynolds chair in media entrepreneurship is that correct well, I was. I jumped from that, too. So, oh, wow. Um, okay, so I did that for three years. Um, that was amazing, you know, because I dropped out of a PhD program and I had wanted to be a professor for many years. And I had thought that I'd just given that up, that that would never be possible having, you know, dropped out without my PhD. I thought you had to have a PhD to be a professor because in the sciences you do. And that's that was my field. But it turns out in the humanities, a master's is enough. And so um, the radio professor at U- University of Nevada had invited me to come give a guest lecture. And when I finished, he said, you do exactly what we're trying to hire someone for, for our chair of media entrepreneurship. Do you want to apply for that job? And you know, I thought about it for a week and like, yes, absolutely. I can do everything, right? <laughs> like, yes, I can still be grammar girl and be a professor. Why, why couldn't I do that? Because sometimes I think I can do more than I can. <laughs> and so I, I got the job and it was wonderful. And I did that for three years. And again, like being a professor, a chair, like a, a safe, comfortable position, you know, people thought I'd lost my mind when I quit, <laughs> you know, but it wasn't the right thing for me. I, it just wasn't the right thing. It wasn't a bad job. It's a great job, wonderful people. You know, there was nothing wrong with it, but I just wasn't happy um, for a variety of reasons. And I did agonize over whether I should quit, but I really wanted to go back to focusing on Grammar Girl because that's that's my primary thing. You know, that's my business. So I wanted to do my business instead of teaching other people how to do businesses. It just, I missed focusing exclusively on my business. And so, so I quit a really cushy academic job because, you know, it wasn't what I wanted out of life. But it, it was a tough decision. Totally. It was, it's interesting. I spoke to a professor actually at Stanford who described a colleague uh, experiencing a lot of angst and worry, not when that colleague didn't receive tenure, uh, which is basically a, a safety net for a long time and, and a guaranteed job for life. But when that colleague did receive tenure, because it it does make things super secure and, and safe and known and comfortable. And for some people, especially it sounds like in your case, there's perhaps more jumps you want to make uh, than, than sitting back and, and taking this, the, the safe road, which is you know not a bad thing at all. But for some of us, that's just not the path we want to be on, right? Yeah, I want to feel like there are more surprises and opportunities ahead of me, not not just know what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. And how has Grammar Girl changed as you've spent more and more time on it in the last few years since then? Well, it's it actually has changed quite a bit. So when I started, it was a, a five-minute quick tip, one thing you'd learn every week. And, you know, we keep hearing from listeners that they want more and more. And so at some point, I started doing two segments. So then it was two, two tips, you know, every week. And um, then actually just really recently, I started doing interviews. Um, there are so many other interesting people in the language world who have books coming out or have done interesting research. And, and I love talking to people. You know, I'm a podcaster. <laughs> so, um, you know, I started doing interviews and, and really loved it. So now I went from doing one show a week 
that was five minutes to doing one show a week that was more like 15. And now I'm doing two shows a week, one that's more like 15, and then one that's a long interview. So, you know, the demand is there. And you know, as long as I can keep up, it's it's really fun to, to fill it and do more shows. But I ha- there is a trend toward doing longer and longer shows, I think, in all of podcasting. I mean, I, it kind of surprises me, because what I like I like shorter shows. And, you know, I always thought that was a, a differentiating factor of why people liked Quick and Dirty Tips podcasts, you know, and, and I should mention, like, we just passed the 300 million download mark. So Quick and Dirty Tips, the network um, that I founded just passed 300 million downloads. So, you know, you're talking about what surprises me, that surprises wow. me. Oh my That's goodness. a lot. I thought it would be a business. I didn't think I didn't necessarily think it would be, you know, a 300 million download worldwide business. But um, so that was a surprise. But, you know, there's just this demand. There are listeners who listen to podcasts like to listen to more podcasts. So, you know, we're trying to meet that demand. Gosh, that's incredible. It sounds it sounds like you're making every uh, every ounce of the opportunity work. And how has it been to work with with a partner like Macmillan, with the backing of the kind of traditional publishing side, as well as this developing new business in podcasting and really being in at the ground floor with them? Yeah, it's been, with any partnership, there are always struggles. It's been great, and they are a wonderful partner, and I literally couldn't have done it without them. You know, they've been there through some really hard times. Like, we we went through the the Great Recession together, and I don't think the network would have made it without them as a partner. Um, You know, they're just, and and I know that the executives are really enthusiastic about the network and, you know, are interested in it and care. It's a a part of the business they care about, and that always feels really good. Um, in the beginning, especially, there was a lot of friction over, um, oh, I don't know what you call it, like culture, because I'm from Silicon Valley. That's how I think of myself, where I spent all my formative years. And, you know, to me, we were a startup. I was working, you know, 16 hours a day, seven days a week, and they would take weekends off. Like they would leave at six and go home and then they'd be gone for the weekend and I'm like what is wrong with you guys <laughs> you know like snap snap you know and and they're like look this is this is how our business operates we're not we're not gonna like work those crazy hours and I was essentially I mean they worked a little harder but essentially I lost <laughs> you know they just told me to calm down and <laughs> um, so you know it took a few years but I, I think I have I've definitely calmed down and you know, the first, I would say the first two or three years, I didn't take a vacation. I didn't take a single day off. I didn't, you know, I didn't go anywhere. I, you know, and I worked most weekends. Um, and in retrospect, that, that was probably the wrong decision. You know, like, I, I kind of regret that looking back. And um, and I've, I've definitely, you know, in the last few years, been a lot more conscientious of trying to take care of myself and, and have a life. And I, I do take vacations now. And... It's hard. I still feel a little guilty. Like you can't escape those roots, <laughs> but but I make myself do it because it, it's important. It, it really is important to have a balanced life and to take care of yourself too. And I think that goes not just for someone in a startup, but but someone who's making a jump on the side, you know, of their of their day to day job. Someone who is uh, perhaps looking to just make a jump in a lifestyle switch, eat healthier, spend more time with family, or work on a project on nights and weekends, moving within companies, like we mentioned. I think that that idea of balance is just so important in general. I think oftentimes we lump it with those who are 
pursuing startup things where it's like, oh, you could just get down the rabbit hole and it can take over your life. But actually, any change you make is going to require discipline on the other side to pull you back and and, and balance you. And I, th- I, I believe that the most successful jumpers I've seen have followed that guidance you just shared, which is to to really think you know, through how you spend your time and how you balance and have a somewhat long-term vision even when your impulse might be to just dive right into all of it. Yeah, and you, I think you, know, you have to do it at times. You have to push yourself at times in life um, to get what you want. But when you take those breaks, it, gives you a, a, it can give you a really fresh perspective and a, you can think of things that you might not have thought of in, in the midst of some workaholic craze. You can th- think of things that are better for the business in the long run or, or better for you in the long run. So it, it's important to take breaks. Absolutely. And so as we, as we wrap up here, and I appreciate you taking so much time, I and mean, this is, it's, it's an honor to, to get to speak to the person behind such a successful platform, like you said, reaching over a quarter of a billion downloads uh, worldwide and, and doing it in a, in a relatively short amount of time is just incredible. So for our, for our listeners who don't know, I would highly recommend checking out Grammar Girl and Quick and Dirty Tips and following along. And I think w- what I'd love to end with is just uh, you know, as you think of who might be listening to this on their commute across the subways of New York or drives in the suburbs of the Midwest or hiking along the beaches of the West Coast or anywhere overseas, and they're contemplating their own jump. Uh, a lot of our listeners are thinking about making a move, and many of us are thinking at the very early stages. Oh, you know, what would you tell folks? I would tell folks to, if you feel it, go for it. Just make sure you have a backup plan. <laughs> I, I hate seeing people um, jump who, you know, don't know what they'll do if it doesn't work out. But if you know what you can do, if, you know, you try it for six months, you try it for a year, know what you'll do if it doesn't work out. But then once you know that, just go for it and give it everything you can. Because if you don't, you'll always wonder. And that, that's the worst thing. I, I think that's the worst thing. So, like, why not? Right? Why not? Exactly right. We will end there on Why Not. Mignon Fogarty, thank you so much for joining me today on the When to Jump podcast. Congratulations on all of your jumps, past, uh, present, and those to come. Oh, thank you, Mike. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Mignon Fogarty. Check out Grammar Girl. Be sure to listen. It is a wonderful podcast with... Uh, a lot of momentum behind it for several years now, and Mignon is truly a pioneer in this podcasting field. So for more on When to Jump, you know where to go, whentojump.com, at When to Jump on social media and across the interwebs. We love to hear from you, and, uh, and we hope that you enjoyed this show. My name is Mike Lewis. This is the When to Jump podcast, and we'll see you next week. At Amica Insurance... We know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.